Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Mark Brown, constitutional law expert and professor at Capital University Law School, to talk about the Texas law that has had a profound effect on abortion rights in America. Mark has clerking experience with the Sixth Circuit in the U.S. Supreme Court and has published many articles on constitutional law and practices constitutional litigation. He's represented parties in state and federal court. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jack, a few years ago, you may recall I ran for common pleas judge. I remember it. Yes. And uh, every so often while I was campaigning, I'd be asked what my stance on abortion was. Not that a common pleas judge in uh, Franklin County, Ohio, would have much say in that, uh, in his job responsibilities. But I had a fixed response, and I learned it from my constitutional law professor when I was in law school. And he would tell us there are really three components to this abortion issue. First, there's what the law says, what the Supreme Court has said uh, about uh, the right to abortion. The second component is what your individual religious beliefs might dictate. I'm Catholic, and so abortion is a sin. And then there's your personal beliefs when it hits home, either for you or a family member or a close friend. And so those three sometimes conflict. But what happens, I think, with politicians is that they've been able to kind of hide behind what the Supreme Court has done, because my pat answer was, I support the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has said that it's a right under the Constitution. So I never had to, or I was able to avoid expressing my personal beliefs. Which was fortunate for you because it's such a hot-button issue. Sure, and I was running as a Republican, so you can guess how many of the people that I was trying to get to vote to me would probably have a different opinion about abortion um, or a woman's right to make that choice than I do. The thing that bothers me about the uh, abortion issue is that the nation is pretty much equally divided. And so while I may not be a fan of abortion on a personal level, I I sit back and I say, well, how can we force 50% of the people to make a decision that they don't like? I mean, it's a civil society. We're supposed to be governed by the majority. But Yet that's not where we're headed. It's really become this this culture war where we spend an inordinate amount of attention on a subject that, in terms of size, is rather modest. Now, that sounds almost heretical to some people because then they start talking about unborn lives, but still. Now, I see where you're coming from, and uh, maybe we could ask uh, Mark to take us back to uh, the origins of um, the uh, the constitutional right for abortion. About All I remember about Roe versus Wade, again, from law school was it was a case originating in Texas, and it established a woman's right to choose. Maybe you can fill us in on a little more details. Well, that's the, the genesis of the modern right to choose an abortion, of course, Roe against Wade 
1973. But Roe itself has some antecedent history to it from the Supreme Court. Um, Griswold against Connecticut dealt with the right in the in the 19, mid-1960s, the right to um, to use contraception. And then Griswold itself was premised on a case out of Oklahoma, Skinner against Oklahoma, from the 1940s, that um, assumed there was this right to to bear or beget children, this right to, to have children. With constitutional law, usually if you have a right to something, like the right to speak, um, or the right to bear arms, you you also have the right not to do that something. So if you have the right to speak, the Supreme Court has said um, dozens of times you have the right not to speak. Um, you've got the right to bear arms. You've got the right not to bear arms. And so if you have this right to to bear or beget children, that naturally, logically, um, would bring with it the right not to have children. And so that's where Griswold and the right to contraception um, and then eventually Roe against Wade, the right to choose an abortion, kind of flow. Um, the Supreme Court uh, packages it up and calls it the right to privacy. Uh, that word is not in the Constitution. Privacy is not? No. Okay. Um, the word liberty is in the Constitution, which you'll find in the 14th Amendment if you're dealing with Texas or um, the Fifth Amendment if you're dealing with the federal government. Um, but it's a stretch to say liberty to privacy to abortion. Uh, but again, there's so much history with the right to family, even going back to the early 20th century, the right to children, that if you've got the right to children, it's not a large step to say you've got the right not to have children. So, But that right to children emanates from what words within the Constitution? Liberty? From liberty, yes. Um, that The right to children, the right to care, custody, and control of children finds its genesis uh, in the early 20th century in a couple of cases, one called the Meyer against Nebraska case, and the other is the Pierce against Society of Sisters case. And they're Lochner-era cases. I don't know if the audience is familiar with Lochner, but that was... I got news for you. The two other people in this room aren't familiar with <laughs> Lochner. <laughs> well, this is back before um, the New Deal, before Roosevelt threatened the court with his court-packing plan. It was very common for the Supreme Court in the early 20th century to use the Due Process Clause to, you might say, generate constitutional rights. And so they did it with the right to contract. In the Lochner case, Joseph Lochner out of New York, it involved a baker. Um, and, and New York stepped in and said that the bakers can only work 10 hours a day and six days a week, 60 hours a week. Shocking to us moderns, but back in the day, they were working a whole lot longer. It was to protect, you know, the, the bakers. And the... the um, Supreme Court struck that down in Lochner. And the Supreme Court, the reason was there's a constitutional right to contract. And you're interfering with the baker's right to work more if he wants. And that's what we call the Lochner era um, precedent. The Supreme Court would do that quite often. And that's where the right to care, custody, and control of children comes from. During that same Lochner era, when the Supreme Court was saying you've got the right to constitutionally to contract using liberty. That's where they, they housed it in the liberty language. The court did the same thing with family. You've got the right to um, educate your kids the way you want. You've got the right to care for the kids the way you want. Um, you've got the right to control the kids the way you want. And all of that traces back to liberty language. And it's all Lochner ear precedent. But you know what? It's never been 
overruled. Instead, the Supreme Court, the modern Supreme Court, embraced it. After um, the Depression, after Roosevelt threatened the Supreme Court with his court-packing plan back in 36, um, 37, uh, we, we had the famous switch in time that saved the nine. Owen Roberts allegedly switched his vote. So the court flipped from five to four in favor of Lochner to five to four against Lochner. So Lochner died. And Lochner's a bad word now. But the, the care, custody, and control of children never died. That's always been there. That survived. And anyway, that's a long answer. But the Supreme Court continues to embrace that. It eventually gave us Chris Wald against Connecticut, and um, which was the, the immediate antecedent to, to Roe against Wade. I don't know if people realize it, but <clears throat> Roe v. Wade is especially difficult to read because it, what is three or four concurring opinions? If you want to read all of Roe v. Wade, you've got a few hundred pages to it's wade very, through, don't you? It's very long. Justice Blackman wrote that. It was one of his first opinions. He would, he'd come on the court. He was a Nixon Republican, and um, he was supposed to be Warren Burger's alter ego. They were called the Minnesota Twins. And, um, but, but you've got to remember, back in the day, in the early 70s, abortion was not the contentious issue it is today. In fact, the opinion came out, it was 7 to 2. It wasn't close. There were concurring opinions, but it wasn't close. It was also bipartisan. Um, in the dissent, you had White and Rehnquist, a Democrat and a Republican. And in the majority, you had uh, Brennan, one of the most liberal justices on the court, as well as Blackman, a Republican, a Nixon Republican. So it was not, it was not nearly as contentious. But anyway, Blackman wrote the opinion. Blackman's uh, background, he was a math major, near and dear to my heart, because I was a math major too. But he was also chief legal counsel at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. So he kind of had a medical-esque background. Mm -hmm. And so he took the case quite personally. And he devoted quite a bit of time to writing that opinion, which came out to be very long. Um, and anyway, that's, again, a long answer. I, I apologize for going on so well, long. Well, a lot of people understand certain uh, constitutional rights because we hear about them all the time. The First Amendment, free speech, freedom of religion, obviously the Second Amendment rights and government can't take away our guns and Fifth Amendment right, you know, to, you don't have to be a witness against yourself. But you mentioned that this particular right, this liberty right, came under the 14th Amendment. Maybe you can tell us what does the 14th Amendment say, and is it as clear as maybe your right to free speech or your right to uh, you know, freedom to practice your religion? Well, none of, I mean, really, actually the First Amendment religion and the First Amendment speech clauses, clauses aren't that clear either. Um, but the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment does lots of things in Section 1. Um, it overrules Dred Scott. It's an 1868 amendment to the Constitution, so it's pretty much all about um, the Civil War and the demise of slavery. So it overrules Dred Scott. It defines citizenship. It also has a due process clause, which says that life, liberty, and property shall not be deprived without due process of law. And that's the language in the 14th Amendment that supports the, the right to care, control, and custody of children, which then supports the, the negative, the right not to have, care, custody, and control of children. But my students at Capitol are quite often fascinated by the fact that most of the language that is generated 
all of the Supreme Court precedent with the Second Amendment, First Amendment religion, First Amendment speech, as well as due process. It's really open-ended language. Liberty, what's liberty mean? What does... um. What does free exercise of religion even mean? We think we know, but we really don't. So, you know, people often criticize Roe against Wade as saying the Supreme Court made it up. Uh, the Supreme Court's made up almost everything. I think uh, I remember my professor telling me the Supreme Court made up its own authority yeah. to make up the law. How does that? Uh, uh, how did that happen? You're exactly right. Who who'd you have? Was it Morgan Shipman? Or? No, it was uh, Brian Freeman. Um, oh, you had Brian. His soul, yes. Yeah. So, are you wait a minute? Are you going all the way back to uh, Marbury versus Madison? Uh, I am not that old, but yeah, that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, you're exa- and your professor, Brian, was exactly right. I mean, the Supreme Court in Marbury against Madison really did make up its authority to, um, to engage in judicial review. So, so the 14th Amendment uh, is still a, um, a United States constitutional amendment. How does it apply to states then uh, running afoul of those amendments? Well, not long after Marbury against Madison, the Supreme Court in a case called Martin against Hunter's Lessee extended judicial review to the states. And so the states are subservient to the Constitution. And in fact, if you look into the original 1787 Constitution, state officers, executive, legislative, judicial, are sworn to uphold the Constitution of the United States. So they answer to the Constitution just like uh, the federal government does. Because the Laws that are being challenged, these um, abortion restrictions, are state laws. I I don't uh, know if there are any federal laws that have been uh, brought before the the Supreme Court, but there certainly are uh, state laws that have been held um, unconstitutional, right? Oh, certainly, yes. Um, In the abortion context, it's it's quite common because states, um, as abortion really became a a very politicized culture war issue— uh, especially the southern states, have tended to, to reenact abortion prohibitions that have been repeatedly struck down in the federal courts. So 49 years ago, before Roe versus Wade, the states ruled this abortion issue. And so I assume there were different rules for different states regarding a woman's right to choose or, or the ability to have an abortion. So let's go back to Roe versus Wade for a minute. Again, I recall it was a Texas case. Roe is uh, not the uh, real plaintiff's name. I, I can't remember who it is, but I think she did she pass away recently? No, the, uh, the attorney who represented Roe did. Yeah, Sarah, Sarah Weddington. Yeah, and she was only, if I'm not mistaken, 26 years old when she argued that case. Fresh out of law school. <laughs> yeah, I- incredible. So Texas had a, uh, a law that prevented uh, abortions unless the uh, health of the mother was, was uh, in jeopardy. And um, as we discussed, uh, the Supreme Court uh, found that law unconstitutional. And so that applied across the nation, Correct. Correct. So now, what is going on in Texas more recently uh, with regard to abortion? Hey, let me interrupt you for a second. Before we get to that Texas law, I want to – you've asked the, the, the great question, but what I've been hearing from you regarding the U.S. Constitution, it's this notion of liberty as stated in the 14th Amendment. But I thought I heard – he may have been on a panel somewhere – 
former Justice Scalia saying, well, I don't think it's constitutional because the, the word abortion is not in the Constitution. Did you ever hear him make that statement? I can't say I did, but I, it would not surprise me. Well, my thought is, what do you do at that kind of conclusion? There are a lot of things we we take advantage of or we're endowed with the right of that's not explicitly stated in the Constitution. Am I wrong? Oh, you're exactly right. Mo- most of our constitutional rights are not in the Constitution. Uh, that's pretty much all there is to it. Um, if you, I mean, look at the Second Amendment, which has become one of the, you know, the the big issues these days, the right to bear arms. It doesn't say anything about AK-47s. It doesn't say anything about um, revolvers. It doesn't say anything about... So let's be clear. When you say our rights are not necessarily enumerated specifically in the Constitution, what you're saying are these were words or notions that were divined by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, through interpretation, uh, because the Constitution itself is is quite open-ended. It had to be Otherwise, they would have never had a majority in Philadelphia in 1787 agree to it. They could not agree to the details. All right. I apologize again for interrupting you, Gonzo. Let's go back to Texas. Well, I actually like this line. I I would think that our Miranda rights are probably not in the Constitution, but the court has found that if you are um, accused of a crime, they have to tell you what your rights are. Yeah, that's a great example when you think about it, right? So let's, uh, let's go to the, the Texas law. What can you tell us uh, about it? Well, there's a lot going on there in Texas. Um, f- first off, the law, my reading of the statute, says that abortions after six weeks are illegal in Texas, which all by itself um, is clearly under-established precedent. Uh, the, Roe, the Roe against Wade case and the Casey um, case out of Pennsylvania more recently, as well as subsequent cases even to those. Uh, that six-week um, ban is plainly unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. Well, so go back to Roe for a minute. Roe was viability. Was, exactly. And so if a, uh, if a fetus can survive outside uh, the womb, then it has certain rights. Exactly. Simply put, but so now Texas has said no, it's a six week hard cutoff, or is it six weeks because of some medically scientific theory that Texas is going under? Um, I'm not sure exactly what Texas's uh, theory was on that, if it was the heartbeat or or something like that, but it's plainly inconsistent with viability, which is not, viability itself is not a fixed. Um, time. Instead, at the time of Roe, it was, I think, around 24 to 28 weeks. Um, now, I think I'm not a doctor. My students usually correct me on this, but I think it's probably moved back to um, 23, 24 weeks or something, but it's not close to six weeks. So six weeks, um, there's uh, uh, no abortions allowed after that time frame. It's clearly unconstitutional. Uh, obviously, uh, somebody sues, and uh, it was working its way up through the court system. Can you tell us the procedure it's been through? Well, the suit was brought by the providers who are the targets of the West uh, of the Texas law. Basically, what Texas has done is it's created a bounty system for those who provide the abortions. Um, any individual, any citizen, can can bring this suit in state court, and um, and when quite a bit of money, I think $10,000 plus, from the provider if it violates the state law. 
So the providers go into federal court in order to, it's called a pre-enforcement action. It's very common in civil rights litigation. Uh, the providers file pre-enforcement actions in federal court in an effort to have the Texas law declared unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment and enjoined. Um, so the district court refuses to dismiss the action, and then there's an interlocutory appeal taken. Does the district court enjoin the law, or does it allow it to go into effect? Um, I think there are a couple of different cases. There was one brought by the United States government, too, and I think that's the one that they got the injunction in. I'd have to look at it again. Um, but the first one, I believe, was just the district court saying we're not going to dismiss. The action goes forward. And that's where the interlocutory appeal uh, comes in. That's very unusual all by itself, the interlocutory appeal. And maybe we can talk about that later when we talk about uh, the various procedures, the well, stumbling blocks. I think we ought to just say that an interlocutory appeal is, is an appeal to a higher court before the entire case is finished. Exactly. Yes. But that's how it got to the Fifth Circuit. Now, the Fifth Circuit more um, probably more of a liberal circuit in the in the United States and we're, we're all laughing because it's not it's, no. it's the most conservative um, which just as an aside it, it's kind of disappointing to me as a as a lawyer that um, you know judges can be conservative or liberal when they are appointed to the bench and then just hold so true to that you know that that concept. It's it's disappointing. But in any event, it's in the Fifth. And so what happens there? The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, takes the case. So it's got interlocutory jurisdiction. And I think it was the United States that actually won the injunction, stays the injunction. So now everything's on hold in the Fifth Circuit. And um, that means the Texas law is still out there. The Texas law is still enforceable. Um, which, of course, has a huge chilling effect on the providers because they're always subject to these huge bounties um, at the whim of any citizen in the, in the state of Texas. I had read um, an article that said that it really doesn't even limit it to the state of Texas, that uh, anybody uh, around the United States could, uh, you know, file suit against a, a provider. Um, and then uh, and you can get your attorney fees, too, for the lawyers that you hire to do that. So so now the Texas law is um, in effect while the case is is, I guess, going forward. But the merits of the case still haven't been looked at at this point in the exactly. process, right? So it goes to the Supreme Court, and what do they do? Yes, the providers go to the Supreme Court on the shadow docket of the Supreme Court. It's not a merits decision. The shadow docket is where the court um, renders procedural opinions, but they ask the Supreme Court to itself step in and lift the stay of the Fifth Circuit and allow the, the existing injunction, I think it was the U.S. injunction, um, to go into place in effect, really asking the Supreme Court to, to stop the Texas law. Um, given the, the plain, in, um, plain fact that the, the Texas law is so unconstitutional, it seemed a reasonable request. But the, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to do that. Instead, the U.S. Supreme Court said that most of the people that you've sued here um, cannot be sued. And thus, um, the Texas law is, is still on the books, still live, and is still 
chilling the, the provider's ability to provide abortions. If the court said most of the people you, the plaintiffs had sued, cannot be sued, that's another way of saying the defend, those defendants must have been state officials? In order to, well, the Constitution of the United States generally only applies to government officials. Right. It doesn't cover private officials. Okay. So, you know, here we are sitting, I think we're all private. We can't violate the Constitution. And, the, and Texas knows that. And that's why Texas created the bounty system giving to private individuals the right to enforce the law uh, because they're not engaged in state action. Now, to go into federal court and get an injunction against them, that's a problem because they're not violating the Constitution. That's the argument, the private. Um, bounty hunters are so, not violating. So, so they were suing the right people, private individuals, but private individuals cannot be held to be acting unconstitutionally. That's the problem. Um, now, in, in this particular case, there was one private individual they targeted. And when the case got to the Fifth Circuit, he filed an affidavit that said he wasn't going to try to get a bounty. And so that pretty much solved that problem. But if, even if they'd included more private individuals, the problem they would have run into is those individuals were not engaged in in state action, which would mean they're really not the proper defendants. Now, with that said, it is possible to treat private individuals as state actors. It's hard to do, though. Um, it's hard to do. Um, so what the providers did, in addition to suing or trying to sue a private individual, they also sued a judge and a clerk of the Texas state courts. Um, their argument being that the private bounty hunters are going to have to go to Texas state court, and now we've got the judge and the clerk, and we want an injunction prohibiting them from hearing these cases, um, preventing the clerk from docketing the case and the judge from hearing the case, because they're looking for state actors, right? And um, those were the most obvious state actors. The Texas law was clear that the Texas Attorney General has nothing to do with it, uh, nor do any Texas prosecutors, nothing to do with it. Um, so the, the providers are kind of scrambling for a, a governmental defendant. And that leads them, it would have led me too, to the judge and the clerk. Now, the, the Supreme Court in its shadow docket opinion says that you can't sue a judge or a clerk in this kind of situation. And that's pretty surprising, I think, because there, there had been prior cases out of the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court had allowed judges to be sued and injunctions even to issue against state court judges uh, under the statute that the providers were using. It's a federal statute called 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. My, my brow is furrowed over this because I've never thought I've never considered the act or the, the – I'm a little tongue-tied here. I've never thought of trying to enjoin a private person under the Constitution. That escaped me when I read the – when I've been reading the news feeds. It's hard to do. All right. So let's put that thought aside and I don't mean to minimize the significance of that. But you can still attack the constitutionality of the statute, can't you? You've got to get at it. You've got to come up with a defendant. And the problem, whoever drafted this for the state of Texas, and I've read some stories about who it was, but the, uh, the drafter was, was quite knowledgeable about federal jurisdiction 
and federal courts and civil rights litigation. Uh, because the problem you run into, it's, it's the 11th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which very few lawyers have ever studied. Um, the 11th Amendment, if you read the language of the amendment, it basically strips the federal courts of so-called diversity jurisdiction between um, citizens of one state and another state. All right. The Supreme Court has interpreted that to codify state sovereign immunity, which means if you want to sue for a constitutional violation in federal court, you cannot sue the state. So Texas was not a potential defendant, could not do it. Wait, you, could, you couldn't sue the state legislature? Nope. The state legislature itself would have absolute immunity and also uh, would be considered an arm of the state. So you cannot sue the state legislature. You cannot sue the state of Texas by name. Um, usually what you do, and there is an exception, um, it, it's called the Ex parte Young exception. The case came out in 1908 where the Supreme Court said, in these situations, instead of suing the state, instead of trying to sue the state legislature, what you do is you sue the executive enforcement official in his name. But there isn't one in this case. And that's where the, the drafter, you know, having read Ex parte Young, having read cases involving the 11th Amendment, um, understood that as long as he kept enforcement officials, Texas enforcement officials, out of it, he could insulate this law potentially from, from constitutional scrutiny. Now, all hope isn't lost, though, because there was a defendant that survived. And is, as I recall, it, is it the licensing board? Some licensing officials. Officials. Okay. Explain that to us. Well, under Texas law, the drafter didn't clean this up, uh, whoever, I forget his name. Uh, under Texas law, if a, um, a licensing official, if you're a provider, of course, you're providing medical services, you have to be licensed by the state of Texas. If a licensee, licensing official gets wind of violations of Texas law, the licensing official can revoke the license. So the Supreme Court said, to the extent you're suing the licensing officials, they're government actors, and you can sue them under Ex parte Young, that case I mentioned, because they're enforcement officials. There's a problem there. Their only authority is to revoke a license. That has nothing really to do with the rest of the statute. What type of license are we talking about? I'm missing you there. Like a medical license. Okay. Um, but that doesn't touch the rest of the statute. So the best you're going to get out of that is you've got an injunction against the licensing official. So they can't take your license away. But the bounty hunter still gets a whole bunch of money if you violate the Texas six-week law. So having the, the licensing officials still as potential defendants um, is problematic. It doesn't necessarily get you where you want to go. So the drafter of this legislation and, and the um, Texas um, legislators that passed it then were able to get around our constitutional rights and really nullify them. And I would think that it could apply to other constitutional rights. Um, I've heard that um, uh, the governor of California wants to invoke a similar law to uh, restrict gun ownership. Um, but I'm kind of curious, is, is it 
could it be used for other constitutional rights, and why would our Supreme Court allow that to stand? Oh, it surely could. I've no doubt about that. You would just do it the same way for the Second Amendment. Um, or or uh, the free exercise clause has really been beefed up recently by the Supreme Court. You know, if you wanted to um, to go after religion, you could easily do it the exact same way. Just give the enforcement power to a private individual. I would think states might be, well, some states obviously with the gun restrictions um, uh, could go after it. But I'd also think uh, that a lot of state governments would like to curtail some of the religious exemptions and immunities and things like that 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 the religious organizations get. So I could see it being used there too. Uh, What other constitutional rights uh, could you allow private enforcement? um, Speech. Speech. That would be another one. Sure. Yeah. So we have the Wild West in the legal system. That's exactly where this, uh, this points, yes. And you know the great irony here is guess, you know, strange matters make for strange bedfellows, but it's the gun uh, enthusiasts who are opposed to this law as well because they fear what Governor Newsom is that is did I get the name yeah. right? Governor Newsom is doing in California. They see it coming down the road for them. What I find a little ironic, if I got this right, is that uh, the court is using its own decisions to raise these restrictions to what it can do as far as barring a constitutional, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, violation. And then arguing that the right to abortion isn't in the Constitution. So it's uh, as far as I can see, this whole argument is outside the Constitution. And uh, I wonder, do you see a path for the Supreme Court to um, to stop this law? I don't think the court's eager to to do that. So I just don't think that's going to happen with this law. I think um, I think the Supreme Court is waiting on. It's got a case from Mississippi on its docket right now, the Dobbs case. Um, Mississippi has a 15-week restriction on abortion, which is unconstitutional under Roe and Roe's progeny. And so I think what the Supreme Court's doing, my guess, and I think this is where it's going, I could be wrong, but I think the Supreme Court says, well, we know we're going to, in the Dobbs case, we're going to overrule part of Roe. So we'll do that. Um, The Texas case will always be out there. And then the Texas case is just going to have to be um, to rethought any be rethought anyway after the new abortion um, case comes down. Let's assume the Supreme Court does not strike down the Texas case, and part of its reasoning is this inability to get to the right defendant that is part and parcel of the law. Now, other legislatures follow suit. We've created, as I said before, the Wild West. What's the fix? In that instance, the Supreme Court would eventually have to step in and say, um, you can get at these these laws. You can treat the private actors to the extent they're authorized by state law as um, as government actors. That they could do it. They've got they've got the building blocks they need to do that. Um, Will they do it with abortion? No. Would they do it with religion? Sure they would. Uh, I mean, if this were a case involving COVID restrictions and private actors being authorized to enforce COVID restrictions, I have no doubt the Supreme Court would have immediately stepped in. 
um, to strike down that kind of authorization of private activity. Which is a very polite way of you saying that the Supreme Court justices are influenced by their own personal beliefs. Well, yes, I think that's certainly <laughs> true. <laughs> but they're basing it in some logic, I guess, oh, you yeah. know, as far as precedent. But what, what I guess, let's take it a step further. So there's no constitutional right to an abortion. Let's say that Congress had the stomach to fix it legislatively. Does a fetus have a constitutional right that Congress can't take away and allow abortions? That's the next step. Obviously. It seems to me that it is. And, and you, you wonder where this is going is that, uh, you know, at what point maybe we go back to viability – does that fetus have its own constitutional rights that uh, the Supreme Court is going to protect? It could, it could reach that conclusion. Um, I think that would be inconsistent with common law. Um, but um, I, that's been bant bantied about quite a bit since Roe against Wade, that, that thought. Um, and it, I, yes, it it could come to that, yes. Well, one of the reasons it crosses my mind is that you say the Wild West, Jack, but you know, a lot of people think that this is an issue that should be decided by each state at a state level. Well, then you're going to have states that are going to allow abortions under different, you know, different circumstances. So I, I could see the um, anti-abortion groups going after that as a, as a constitutional right to prevent those states that are going to allow it. You know, there's another angle of this uh, in terms of viability, and I saw this on the Michael Smirconi show on CNN a few weeks back, which, by the way, is a wonderful hour of news. But they talked about abortion laws being viewed differently in the not-too-distant future because of viability, and that hinged on the fact that a woman gave birth to a 19-week-old fetus, I think it was 19 or 20, something very remarkable, and the child survived. So now if we, even under the text of viability, science may take away half of the problem by making viability come much earlier than we know today. Mark, you, um, you also are a litigator. You've, you've been involved in cases. If you were... Uh, in the uh, fight on the merits in Texas, is there some way that uh, that plaintiffs can prevail? Uh, we've been talking about the procedure and that these injunctions aren't going to stand, but what can we uh, talk about as far as the merits of, of the case to get this law uh, thrown out? Well, if they could get to the merits, um, they would plainly prevail because of Roe and Casey and the cases that have come out after that. There's just no way that Texas, um, under existing precedent, can defend this law. Well, so I was taking it, I guess, past, uh, if we're going to assume for purposes of our discussion that the uh, court is going to limit or overrule Roe versus Wade, then does this Texas law stand? Or is there another challenge to it uh, at the ground level right now? Um, first off, it depends on what the Supreme Court does in that Dobbs case out of Mississippi. Um, it could very well simply say that the Mississippi 15-week law is constitutional and otherwise leave Roe untouched. And a lot of people suspect that's going to happen. 
Or it could go all out and just say Rose gone, mm-hmm. which could happen too, I think. I I can foresee. I, I'd imagine either one of them. Uh, let's assume that they just overrule Roe. You know, what does that leave um, abortion providers with? Uh, Justice Ginsburg in her day quite often argued that the way to get at abortion restrictions, the proper way, is to do it through the Equal Protection Clause um, and to argue that abortion restrictions are gender discrimination, um, which is, if, if Justice Ginsburg said it, uh, and, and if you think about it, she's right, and it's got credibility, certainly, uh, because only women get pregnant and you're restricting what only women can do. So that does smack of gender discrimination, which is unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, too, but for a different reason, because of the Equal Protection Clause. I see. Yep. There's a problem doing that, though. There's an old case that came out of the Supreme Court, not too old, uh, back in 1974. It's called Gedaldig against Aiello. And in this case, the Supreme Court said that pregnancy discrimination was not gender-based, and thus did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. Maybe as a way of wrapping up our discussion. <laughs> well, no, this is, we could go on for hours, but maybe a nice way of wrapping up this, the discussion is if you could help us explain how we went from an issue like abortion that was topical in the 70s to now promote such extreme points of view, anger, rage, and the occasional burning of an abortion clinic, what made the transition? That's a good question. Gosh. You know, I was raised Catholic, so I was coming of age at the time Roe came down, and I remember in my Catholic school that every morning um, we had Zaverian brothers as teachers. The Zaverian brother would, um, every morning, would talk about how bad Roe against Wade was. Um, so it was, al- it was always a very Catholic problem, no doubt about that. And then somewhere along the way, the ev- evangelical, you know, Christian movement got on board with that too. It just, Roe against Wade galvanized the, um, the anti-abortion crowd and made it a culture war problem. And I that's that's a gross simplification, obviously, but I I, I do think you know what, it, you make lemonade out of lemons, right? Let's say Roe against Wade is overturned. Probably one of the best things that could happen for the Democratic Party right now. Oh, that's the battle cry for it, the next election. It would give them the battle cry. Yes, I'm a little. Uh, maybe more cynical even about how this became such an issue. To me, it really goes back to the politics. We have politicians who spotted an issue to, uh, like you say, galvanize, but it's galvanizing support for them to be in office. And this has been an issue that has raised so much money for Republicans that it brought out people to vote for Republicans. And um, these politicians aren't going to let it go anytime soon or, or if ever. I, I always think if there's a will, there's a way. And if a judge wants to do something, they're going to find the rationale for it. If a politician wants to do something, they can find the rationale for it. But many of our politicians just would love the status quo because it benefits them. 
regrettably, as always, Gonzo, you always dig a little deeper and find that subtle notion that drives people. And I think you're right here. Mark, we appreciate you coming on. I uh, had flashbacks to my constitutional law class when you were quoting and citing uh, case law uh, back in the day. Jack, you and I would have had to have learned the cases and probably the citations to them. So I'm glad we're not there anymore. But we do appreciate the uh, the lesson and the uh, insight and uh, your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Always, always nice to see you guys. Yeah, wonderful having you with us, Mark. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important legal or social justice issue, and we hope you join us so that it's not just us, but all of us seeking social justice. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. Until then, so long. <laughs>